0: Our Bible reading today is taken from Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 6. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 14. But to put things into context, I think I'll read from verse 20 of chapter 5 as well. Okay, um, so Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who, do, how can we, who died to sin still live in it? for if you have been united with him in the death like his we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace.
1: Well, it's unlikely to happen, but if ever I got around to writing my biography, it would be called I'm Not the Person I Used to Be. It would be in two volumes. It would be sort of one life therefore in uh, in two massively different parts. So volume one I suspect would probably highlight my childhood years in Northern Ireland and then relocating to Australia with my family at age 16 and that volume would have uh, lots of really massive changes in there for me. The second volume however would be the really crucial volume I think and by far the largest volume. And it would begin with my getting married to Alison. Uh, And a story, therefore, that's continuing thus far, uh, 42 years of really radically and positively life-changing years. It's hard for me to think of a single area in my life that's not been massively impacted by being married to Alison, for, for the good. And it's such that I would never, ever want to go back to being single. Now, hopefully this picture of biography will help us move into Romans chapter 6, where Paul continues to spell out the result and the ongoing personal effect of the gospel in the life of every believer. And I think his point is, is this as we move into it, that essentially God's gospel grace changes everything in the life of a believer. Those who are in Christ is the terminology that's been used through chapters five and six. So, a bit of revision as I normally do. In in chapter one, verse 16 and 17, he's already defined the gospel. Uh, And then chapter two and three, he's, he's actually worked through why every single person needs the gospel. And then in chapters three and four, he's defined what the gospel is. And chapters five then, through into where we're working at the minute, chapter six, Paul starts to unpack the practical results of the gospel in the life of the believer. And essentially what he's saying is, look, the gospel means a totally new legal and social or relational standing between God and his people for believers, radically and totally new. And in chapter 5, over the last two weeks, we've seen Paul's list of the incredible blessings that we can be absolutely confident are ours forever. Why? Because we're now tied to Jesus, as once we were tied to Adam. Jesus is our representative head, is what we saw last week. He acts for all those who are associated with him. Every blessing won by Jesus and enjoyed by Jesus, we as his people share in. But there's more to be said as we move into chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, Paul wants us to understand that the gospel of, also changes us or transforms us. It's not just that the gospel changes our standing before God legally and socially. The gospel actually changes us, transforms us. We have a personal experience of change. It transforms how we live, how we think, how we act. So here's a summary of chapter six, uh, flowing over from chapter five. United with Christ, or being in Christ, united with Christ, everything is different. We are not the same people we were before we became believers. Volume 2 of our biography, our spiritual biography, has begun. Now, the question as we move into chapter 6, it's a confronting question, uh, clearly paul has established that god's grace is really gracious really gracious but does that graciousness have unintended consequences paul begins with two questions which link us back to his last statement in chapter 5 verse 2021 20 and Lay's obviously on the ball this morning because uh, I should have got her to read that, but she's taken the initiative and read it, so it's excellent. She's, she's more prepared than I am uh, for this, so you don't want to swap, do you, Leigh? Come on up. So the two questions link us back to chapter five, verse 20 and 21. See the two questions? What shall we say then? So th- that's, that links us back to chapter five, the arguments are already in, are, and then the question flows out of that. So let's have a look at those two uh, verses in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The problem of sin was always huge for God, right from the time of Adam. But the introduction of God's law sharpened the focus on sin in the time of Moses. And it showed even more clearly, because there was a written code and you could evaluate, it showed even more clearly how deeply ingrained sin was in God's people, how extensive it reached. It showed even more clearly the guilt of God's people and even provoked disobedience and rebellion. And we we know that, don't we? You see a sign on the side of the road, speed limit, 100, and you think, I want to go at 110 or 120, 130. So the rule actually provokes disobedience. But God's grace was even bigger than all of that. And God's grace was so big it was seen in the death of Christ the death of Jesus and so Paul then anticipates the question that would follow from that so it goes something like this well given the graciousness of God's grace does it follow then that we who have been justified by grace alone should be comfortable sinning should be comfortable sinning more knowing that it would further demonstrate the extent extent and generosity of God's grace. Or put it in slightly different words. If my sin shows God's grace, then surely the more I sin, I actually make God and God's grace look even better. That's an outrageous question, isn't it? Paul's answer, verse 2, is very sharp, by no means, or in modern lingo, don't be ridiculous. And what follows then, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul's answer is, don't be ridiculous. Jesus died to deal with sinless people, so how could we easily continue to live with it? Or put it in different words, how could those who say they love Jesus continue to love the very thing that actually caused Jesus to be killed? Caused the death of the one they love. Now, again, maybe an illustration would help here. It's, it's almost as Paul said, it would be as, as ridiculous as a hopelessly lost bushwalker rescued from certain death at huge cost to the helicopter rescue service, but actually free to the idiot who got lost. And then they said, Well, how can I respond? Oh, I know how I'll respond. I'll go and get more lost and more regularly lost and get lost in more difficult terrain because these guys are super competent. And the more lost I get and the more frequently I get lost, then everybody will be able to see how competent they are at their jobs. You see how ridiculous that is? Now, if, if they really want to honor the rescue team If they really want to show appreciation for the rescue, then the obvious thing to do is to make every effort not to stray away again, rather than force these competent rescue people to repeatedly put their life in danger. So there's Paul's short answer, don't be ridiculous. But then he expands it in, in verses 3 through to 11. And his first point, I think, is uh, that in Christ or united with Christ, you are a new creation. So at the heart of Paul's argument here is the phrase, we who died to sin. In fact, it's repeated then in verse 7 uh, and verse 11. So look at verse 7 for we, one who has died, and then verse 11, um, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. So, so what does this phrase mean? What is it? It's described of believers. What is it to be dead to sin? Well, again, uh, hopefully an illustration might help. Suppose there's an old Christian guy Uh, John Jones and he's looking back over his life like a biography and he speaks of his life in two parts separated by his conversion by him becoming believer and as you listen to John Jones he speaks about the old sinful John Jones characterized by disobedience uh, by careless disregard for God by lack of awareness of, of, of his sin or his offence to God, because the old John Jones was basically living an autonomous life, living for himself. Then he speaks about the new John Jones, uh, still stumbling into sinful disobedience, yes, yet desiring now more than anything else to honour the Lord in every thought and action and so the new John Jones grieves over his sin every time he stumbles into it and wishes he could be free from it. So what happened to John Jones when he became a believer that made such a radical change in his thinking and his outlook and his desires? Well. His old life, lived under the old man Adam, as we saw last week, was finished. It came to an end. Volume 1 of the biography was written and complete. John came to realize his sin. Uh, He came to realize that he was actually, compared to the righteousness of God, he was actually unrighteous, so unrighteous that his sin deserved death, God's condemnation the full penalty of God's wrath and righteous judgment. And John Jones then, uh, realizing he couldn't bear the wrath of God in himself and had an alternative in Jesus, took God at his word and turned to Jesus, believing that as he was united with Jesus by God's grace in salvation, then the death that Jesus died became his death. And the benefits of Christ's death were transferred to him. That's the, forces of, that's the force, I think, of verses 5 and 6. So, so read them through with me now. Follow through as I read them. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, a sacrificial death for sin, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. United with Christ, John Johns learned to view himself as if he himself had died for his sin, Thus his old life, dominated by sin which left him guilty before God, was brought to an end. God's justice was satisfied. In the death of Christ, it was as if John Jones' life had been forfeited. That's how God viewed it. The immediate consequence of this for John Jones, well, verse 7. One who has died has been set free, uh, in, in the Greek that is one who has died has been justified, that's the word. It's a bit of a, a liberal translation there. One who has died has been justified. It is, it is a freedom concept, but it's a, a legal process to that freedom. One who has died has been justified, which in turn is free from the, the guilt of sin, freedom from the guilt of sin. Death pays all the debt owed. And when the debt is paid, you're free to go. The guilt of his sin and its power to accuse him of ongoing guilt is removed. And in that sense, he's set free. Now, important caveat here. It's not that John John suddenly was perfect. As if somehow or other he is free from any ongoing inclination to sin or any temptation to sin. It's that the guilt and power of sin to accuse him and debilitate him has been removed. Why? Because he enjoys the benefit of Christ's death. As if it was his own death. That's what it is to be united with Christ. But that's only half the story for John Jones as he becomes a believer. United with Christ at his point of salvation, it's also true that his new resurrection life lived under the new man, old man was Adam, the new man is Jesus, his new resurrection life has also begun. And that's the force of verses eight through to 10. So follow again. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And the idea there in the tense is a continuous life. Died to sin once to all, lives continuously for God. So satisfactory was Jesus' death in meeting all the demands of God's wrath and justice in respect of sin that Jesus quite literally came back from the grave resurrected to new life as proof that never again would any penalty for the sin of John Jones be required by the Lord. So putting it together, what was God's salvation purpose or God's gospel purpose for John Jones? Well, it was that John Johns would experience personally both the benefits of Christ's death and also the benefits of Christ's resurrection. When he became a believer, John Jones rose, as it were, a new man to live a new life to God. Lived under God's rule in thankfulness, intimacy, security, obedience, and life forever free from the guilt and penalty of sin. All those things that we saw listed in chapter 5. Now, John Jones is every believer here this morning. All these benefits, both of the death of Christ and of the resurrection of Christ, are ours in Christ because we are united with Christ. Just as we tumbled headlong into disobedience, guilt, and death with Adam, our first representative head, representative man, So we've been rescued, lifted up to a new life, given a fresh start, with new hearts shaped and filled by the love of God poured into us by the Holy Spirit as we saw two weeks ago in Romans 5. One life, massively different in its parts. The difference? God's salvation, becoming a believer. And Paul then uses. You know, might be wondering why I jumped over verses three and four. Well, Paul just uses the symbol of baptism to to help establish his point. So, if you look at chapter three, uh, verse three, rather, it says, "Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, and there's that interesting word there, it's baptized into Christ. Who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized." Again, emphasis, into his death. Being baptised into Christ pictures identification with or being united with Jesus. We're baptised into him, into his death. Now, again, note carefully, it doesn't say that the baptism secures or establishes our union with Christ. Our baptism is a, a practical expression of that, which has already been established by the death of Christ, by God on our behalf. So giving sorry, not giving going into the water symbolizes death and burial it's as if the old life of unrighteousness or sin in Adam is finished gone they're dead to sin in that sense then as they come up out of the water it symbolizes the start of a new resurrection life in Christ a fresh start in a life of righteousness and grateful obedience to God. The pivot point in the life of a Christian. The old John Jones, now the new John Jones. So what do we do with this? Well, verse 11, a very, very simple application I believe. Uh, Having said that, I'll probably try and make it complicated. Uh, it's as if Paul's just saying, act out who you are. Now, I think we often get tripped up as Christians and ask them the question well, what, what, what do we need to do? We, we've got this sense that the gift isn't free, that somehow or other we owe God and we want to pay God back. We don't like to be indebted even if we think it's free. So we're always asking the question, well, what is it that we need to do as Christians in response to God's graciousness? Well, I think Paul says it here in very simple terms. Act out. That's what you need to do in response to the Gospel. Act out. Now, it's not very often we get encouraged to act out, is it? Well, act out. Be who you are. Now, a question that's often raised by Christians I've raised it, and I'm going to raise it here, and hopefully I won't get into trouble for it. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. Can I say as a Christian that I'm free to do whatever I like? I can do whatever I want. The answer is yes. Yes. But I then quickly have to follow up and say, well, what is it that I now want to do in Christ? And the answer is, I want to honour him. I want to serve him. I want to be as far away from that which offends him as it's possible to be. So act out who you are. Now, Paul's not asking us here to pretend about something that's not in fact true. He's asking us to realize and act accordingly in respect to something that is true. Uh, Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves, and that word consider is just to, well, just to actually have a look and recognize this is how it is. So if you can recognize this is how it is, this is how you are in Christ, you're dead to sin and alive to God. And start acting it out. Now again, don't get it wrong. It's not that my sinful nature has totally died out and totally removed from me. That's something the Bible says won't happen until I go to be with Jesus in heaven. Rather, it's my old self. You know the volume one, the volume two? It's my old self, guilty before the Lord. That's the one that's gone. I must realize that in Christ, I have a new life to be lived for God And get on with doing that. Yes, there will be daily sinful uh, happenings and failures. Yes, I will not be what I want to be and who I want to be. But I'm not who I used to be. I am dead to sin in Christ. I'm raised to new life in Christ. And I need to live accordingly. Not to do that, not to be who I am, is essentially to continue, again illustratively, to continue living the life of a hobo, a down and out, homeless, purposeless, miserable, despairing person when in fact, I've actually been taken into the, the richest royal family history has ever known. And I have been given access to every single resource of that royal family. It just doesn't make sense that I continue to act like a hobo. Now friends, hopefully you will see now why Paul is so sharp in his response in verse 2. Don't be ridiculous. As I said earlier, if we love Jesus, how could we continue to love the very thing which caused his death? Now, we'll still be part of the very thing that caused his death, but that's very different from loving it. In fact, the longer we, the more we love Jesus, the more we'll hate the thing that caused his death. And Paul's second point and you'll be uh, glad mercifully, it'll be a lot shorter uh, Paul's second point is that in Christ's cr- new creation, Christ ought practically to be king. And it's picking up verses 12, 13, 14. If you notice in the text there, Paul uses imperatives or commands for the first time in his, in his uh, letter in Romans. Let not sin, therefore. That's a, this is a, that's a direct command. Let not sin, therefore. reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, it's a question of loyalty. It's a question of identification. Put it in simple terms. Who will be king? Because it got the, the, the word here, reign, a monarch. Who will be king and what will be king in your life, your new resurrection life? Verse 13 is a, is a pretty strong military picture, I think. Do not present your members to sin as instruments. That word instruments has, has got... The, the notion of weapons. In the daily battlefield of life, either we will surrender to sin and thereby declare war on God, whose purpose in salvation was to deliver us from sin. So either we'll surrender to sin and thereby declare war on God, or we will rally around King Jesus and war against sin, thereby demonstrating your conviction that sin is an already defeated enemy. And that the future is with loyalty and service of God. Now make no mistake, It will be a battle. Sin is still a really powerful force. Using the language of of verse 12 and 13, it's as as if sin is like a, a deposed but angry king who remains determined to reign again, to take back that which has been lost to him. Determined to reign again in our lives. Sin still occupies some territory, but not the capital city. And my desire to turn away from unrighteousness and serve God as I rally around King Jesus will be the motivation, the encouragement into the struggle. The enemy I'm fighting against, sin, unrighteousness, is already defeated. I am on the side of King Jesus. He has brought me near to him. Second point in these last verses is don't reduce God to rules. Pursue him in thankful relationship which is worship. Now, if you, if you look at verse 13, it says, don't present yourself, present um, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. It's a relational statement. Present yourself. Pursue God. Come before God and say, here I am. What, what do you want me to do? Now, historically, Christians have shown a lack of understanding of justification by faith. And this lack of understanding almost always reduces God to thinking, to to, to reduces God to, to, or sorry, reduces thinking about God to rules. Sorry, I got that mixed up. Almost always reduces thinking about God to rules. So when you think, well, how do I live as a Christian? Rules. Well, actually, no. The first one is, sometimes Christians say there are no rules. Go back to chapter uh, 6, verse 1. Some people say, well, okay, look, I'm saved by grace. Uh, my performance doesn't matter. I can, I can keep on sinning. It's no big deal. And we see Christians like that who have little concern to, to change, to become more like Christ. Others... Go to the other extreme and have overlaid God's grace, grace with holiness rules until freedom uh, in Christ has been smothered with a long list of what Christians should and shouldn't do to prove that they're saved. But true understanding of grace pushes us to relationship and worship, presenting yourself to God or pursuing him as his beloved died for child, determined to express your thankfulness. And so our motivation in the Christian life is not fear of what God might do to us if we break the rules, but love for what God has already done for us in Christ. That's our motivation. And in turn, the sheer joy and goodness of God's purpose for us as children is best experienced by us When we actually struggle and actively struggle to say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. My friends, we need to understand that Christ is the way to life. And Christ is the prize in life. Well, just about finished. Bear with me another couple of minutes. The final thing I want to say is don't focus on your own efforts or success as you struggle but your new state state of grace. My life is a biography written in two volumes. It's been written by the Lord Jesus. Volume one is just tragic. And not surprisingly so, because it's the story of my autonomy. It's the story of my condemnation God's condemnation on my unrighteousness but as a believer volume two is well underway and is full of hope and promise in the struggle because it's the story of what God has done for me and the story of what God continues to do in me I'm united with Christ I have a spirit within me, he pours his love into me daily. That's gonna shape the second volume. So my friends this morning, I say to you, keep your focus on Jesus' efforts and success on your behalf, not on your own efforts and success. Remember this, that God doesn't ask you for perfection or success in that which you cannot do, and that is be sinless. He asks for faithfulness as you struggle to be daily that which you are in Christ. I just want to finish with the words of John Newton, which I've already hinted at earlier in the sermon. Every believer can say this with confidence. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what God wants me to be. I'm not what I will be one day. But I'm certainly not what I used to be. Pray with me. Lord, help us to see this simple truth as we seek to take to ourselves justification by faith that both the the benefits of your death and the benefits of your resurrection are applied to us and that we experience them personally on a day-by-day basis. Thank you, Lord, that every believer here is well into the second volume of the biography with hope and promise and certainty because we're united with you. Give us confidence, therefore, Lord, and the simplicity of life to act out who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.